Welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. I'm your host, Dwayne Diker. This is episode 12, Appellate Workflows. Thanks for joining me. This week's show is again sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency, the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. More about CSBA later. Our topic this week is about appellate workflows and some of the ways that we approach our work as appellate lawyers. My guest is Chris Donovan, an appellate attorney and shareholder at Rotzel and Andrus in Naples. My discussion with Chris is coming up next. Chris Donovan, welcome to the Issues on Appeal podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Dwayne. I've introduced you a little bit in the in the prologue, but you are a shareholder at Retzel and Andrus in Naples. You're a board certified appellate lawyer. How uh, how would you describe your practice? Uh, I have a pretty uh, broad practice. Uh, pretty much everything appellate. Uh, I don't really uh, uh, do any of the trial work, uh, except for you know when you try to support your trial attorneys uh, when they know that something's going on appeal. Um, and pretty much the only thing I don't do is is, is criminal appeals. Uh, I'm not sure that I would turn it down if it was offered, but uh, it's just not something that I, I focus on. Um, so that's my broad practice. And I also do, I have a sort of I'm developing sort of a subspecialty in land use appeals uh, over the last year or so. I've been writing and speaking a lot on that. And I noticed on your bio on your website, it says that you are one of, I think, three board certified lawyers in sort of like that Southwest Florida area. Yeah. Uh, that That's a nice marketing, uh, nice marketing uh, blurb. It, it is. And I heard that one of my uh, competitors, so to say, although we're, I guess we're all competitors, but we're all pretty friendly in, in the, in the pellet bar, but one of my competitors is uh, uh, retiring. So I might be down to two <laughs> in this area. <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that's even better. So are you the only person in your office that would describe themselves as an appellate lawyer? Yes, yes, uh, especially in the Florida offices. Uh, we, we do have a, a gentleman in our Ohio offices that uh, has a pretty brisk uh, appellate practice, but uh, he also does some trial work. So, But I'm the only one that's uh, board certified and we're 100% of my work is appellate. So when you and I were talking about possible topics for the podcast, we're talking about the fact that, and and I think that you and I are sort of similar in this way, is that we don't, we don't have um, colleagues that we work immediately with that are appellate lawyers, and maybe didn't have real strong appellate mentors uh, as we were, you know, growing up as appellate lawyers. And so we, we sort of had to learn a little bit of this ourselves. And uh, so you've given a lot of thought, I know, to kind of the workflow uh, of the appellate practice and, and and organized your thoughts on how you do that. And so I thought that seemed like a great topic, something we could talk about on the podcast. Yes, completely agree. And that's, uh, that was the, uh, definitely the thing that I, I have noticed that, you know, others that had the good fortune of going to a firm that, uh, already had big appellate departments, they obviously had good mentoring and stuff. So I had to sort of create my own mentoring, asking a lot of questions of of my peers that were older than me and more wiser and and then sort of develop my own way of doing things, I guess you'd say. Yeah. And and you sent me a, a fairly extensive outline <laughs> of kind of your approach to these things. And I want to talk to you about some of it. Um, just so, you know, I think it's a good idea for all of us to kind of think about 
you know, what is our workflow and, and how do we approach these things? I think that you and I have similar approaches in a lot of things, but um, until I started looking at your outline, I never really thought about it to that degree that I'm, you know, it wouldn't be bad sometimes to have a checklist or to have a way to kind of preserve these um, these thoughts or train other people and that sort of thing. So, um, well, tell me, let, let's start at the beginning. And I, I think we should start probably talking about, although I don't know about you, I don't represent appellants as much as I do appellees, I don't think, but it probably makes sense since the job of being an appellant is a little more complicated. Uh, maybe we should talk about that. And then when appropriate, we'll talk about you know, what, are, what are the distinctions between when we're representing an appellant, appellant or an appellee. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. It's funny that you say that uh, you you tend to be the appellee more than the appellant, and I would tend to agree as well. Although, candidly, it depends on how how good our trial attorneys are going at any given time. <laughs> right. No, that's true. That's true. And it's always you know it's always nice to be the appellee because the odds are forever in your favor, right? Right. Amen. <laughs> So when you have a uh, appeal that you've gotten involved in and you're, you know, obviously the first step is filing the notice of appeal. Are there any particular, you know, considerations that, that you give to that process? Generally not. I mean, the, the main consideration I have is to get it in earlier than later since the uh, jurisdictional deadline is the one deadline that's not movable. But uh, uh, in terms of actually drafting the notice of appeal, uh, really, it's that's one area where I streamline that through my uh, my staff and uh, sort of just generally tell them sort of the nature of the order on appeal so they can fill in that blank or whether or not we're under uh, the final appeal rule or, or the non-final appeal rule. Right. And um, yeah, no, I, when I talk about this with my, you know, I, I also teach, um, I've talked about that on the podcast. Mm -hmm. I always tell the uh, students that, boy, Appellate deadlines, the, the the deadline to file a notice of appeal is the kind of thing that keeps you up at night because there's just no fixing that, right? So that's very true. Uh, I never, I do not like to wait until the last day an appeal is due to file it ever uh, if I can avoid it. But sometimes our partners aren't always that courteous to us, right? You're, you're very right. And I'm also, we're also fortunate to now live in a digital age where the filing just requires a couple of clicks versus the, the old age where you had to actually send it in. And then there was the sweating bullets while you wait to make sure that you got there. That's right. <laughs> so uh, when do you start thinking as an appellant, when do you start thinking about the record? As the appellant, I, uh, I I generally think right away, at least um, you know, at least in terms of having one of my paralegals pull the docket, and I I tentatively going through it uh, and looking at it, but also as we're sort of the initial issues, you, you oftentimes sort of inherit inherit from the uh, trial attorney, and just speaking with them, this gives you an idea as to what. Uh, uh, portions of the record you might need. Uh, but a lot of times I find it cheaper uh, rather than trying to identify specific records uh, to direct the clerk to include. I, I find it cheaper and better just to let them include everything. I, I'm sure that the staff attorneys at the courts don't care for that part, but it's a <laughs> it's a balancing of picking what we be better to be over inclusive than under inclusive. And usually the rules are pretty good about including everything that you need. Uh, the only exception to that is if there's 
something on appeal related to, you know, you didn't get notice or something, then usually you, you certainly want to make sure that the clerk includes that. And then, of course, identifying who is the court reporter and making sure the transcripts were there. That being, of course, probably one of the most important aspects of the appeal is including a transcript. Yeah, I find that the the standard record, what is that, 9.210, mm-hmm. I think the standard record is usually enough. Right. I, I don't often uh, file instructions to the clerk unless, like you said, there's something in a notice or something that would normally be excluded that might be important, and I try and catch that, you know, early. Um, same thing for, for me with depot transcripts. If I can get them transcribed right away and get them in the court file before I have to deal with the designation mm-hmm. of the court reporter, that makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. I agree. Although, uh, and I may be sort of jumping your question here, the process is, I think, a little different in terms, at least the record aspect of it is a little different for me in the non-final original proceedings perspective, since we have to gather the record uh, and, and, and of course, trying to judge, you know, you, you could just sort of turn it over to your paralegal and say, put a record together. But that's, to me, one area where it's better to be a little more selective. You may not need a considerable appendix for your uh, uh, initial brief or your petition for certiorari. Um, so and it's also a good time for you to go through the docket and identify uh, what documents you need, what documents don't, and also familiarize yourself, sort of initial review, if you will, of the doc or excuse me, of the record, the potential record on appeal. Totally agree. And that that is that is a big burden in non-final appeals when you're the appellant and the, the burden falls on you instead yeah. of the clerk. Uh, to put together that, uh, and that, you know, we could probably talk a whole show about that because, uh, you know, there's a lot of decisions to make about being over-inclusive or under-inclusive. And then you get into issues with the size of the record and filing it. And yeah, I, um, I'm much happier when the clerk is preparing it and posting it for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, and, and to me, the, 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 the core problem in, in that process is how to do it as efficiently and cost effectively as possible, because it would be easier just to let um, a, a staff member who doesn't have to bill for it or a paralegal who bills at a lower rate to just organize it and put it in an appendix and paginate it, et cetera. But part of the decision of forming what documents should be in the record is, is in my opinion, a lawyer function because you need to know what you're going to need to make your argument and overturn that uh, uh, bad decision um, or uh, affirm it if you're trying to build a counter record if you're the, the uh, appellee or respondent. No, I, I definitely agree. I think that there's, there's a lot of decisions that have to be made that are important decisions. Mm-hmm and putting that record together and it's it's better to start early because uh it can be a hassle for sure that it can all right so assuming we get through this process uh and we we get the we get the record um how do you start working on your initial brief well i i begin uh typically by going through the record and, and re- reviewing and analyzing, particularly I begin with the uh, the, the pleadings and pretrial filings uh, um, and, and then eventually move to any relevant transcripts. I don't usually focus on the exhibits uh, until I'm at the writing stage, uh, usually because um, 
the context of the transcript will tell me if the exhibit's important to my issue. Uh, and because usually I've already read that exhibit at some point while reading through the pleadings in the pretrial, um, the pretrial filings. But I always start with a good review of the record. Mm -hmm. And now how do you do that? Now, in the, in the not too distant past, <laughs> we were always reviewing records and paper, right? We'd have stacks of three ring binders. And if you were like me, you'd highlight things and put sticky notes and that sort of thing. But now we have the luxury of generally having an electronic record in a PDF format. How does that change? You know, what, what's your process of reviewing and, and taking notes so that you can be most efficient in, in that process? Well, the uh, the electronic record is the best thing that's happened to appellate practice, in my opinion. I mean, <laughs> here, here, yeah, agreed. The days of having to only get an index and then try to create your own record that matches that index, uh, where oftentimes you'd wonder, well, how do they have these extra pages to this document <laughs> <laughs> are, are thankfully gone. And now we can at least download the record that's been submitted and see the exact same thing that the uh, appellate court sees. Uh, and I typically, uh, nowadays, I, I try to be as paperless as possible. Uh, I, I typically review uh, uh, the records uh, on a mixture of the desktop sort of uh, through a, a, a desktop program or on uh, my iPad. Uh, it depends on the size of the record and depends on whether I want to sit in a comfy chair while reading it or sitting at my desk. <laughs> yeah. Now, do you have the ability, do you use software that allows you to alternate between the two to, to work on the desktop and on your iPad on the same PDF file with annotations and Unfortunately, such? Unfortunately, not yet. Uh, I think, Think that, okay, uh, I was hoping you were going to say yes because I can't do that either. Yeah, no, we can't yet. I, I'm still whatever, whatever, wherever I start is where usually where I finish, at least for that case. Right. Um, I, I, we're we're working towards as a firm trying to get on uh, Microsoft 360, which will then have a OneDrive, and so I think that then things can get saved. Sort of, it becomes cloud-based, and so if I download it to my iPad, I can just hit save or upload and it'll upload my changes and then I'd be able to open it up on my desktop, but I, we're not there yet. All right. So, but most of your note taking is done electronically. Are you, are you annotating uh, the record or are you creating a new document with your notes or both? Uh, it depends on the size of the record. Uh, if it's a smaller record, I typically will, you know, uh, highlight and make margin notes uh, and, 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 create sort of digital notes within the uh, um, PDF viewing program. In some of the larger records, particularly these, these you know, several week trials or even several day trials that produce uh, a, a ton of potential facts and transcripts, I will uh, uh, maybe start with just reading it through once and highlighting, and I'm a big fan of colors. I will try to color code the issues as best I can, at least the, my preliminary analysis of the issues. Uh, and then uh, uh, sometimes we'll, I will then go back and in a, um, a Word document, sort of try to summarize with pinpoint sites to the transcript and the line that, that, that the uh, uh, testimonies on uh, uh, the particular testimony. And I'll order those in, in either the uh, individual witnesses testimonies, or even sometimes based on the issue that I think that that, that testimony relates to. 
Um, and then the other thing I, I like to do, I, I'm a big fan of <laughs> trying to stay as organized as possible. Uh, and sometimes I will have my paralegal just go through the transcript and do this for me so that I don't have to, to take the time to do it as I'm reading it. But a lot of times I'll also, uh, in transcripts, we'll have like, uh, we'll use bookmarks uh, for like opening statements uh, uh, and then individual witnesses and their direct cross-examination uh, rebuttals and sur rebuttals, just so that I have points of reference uh, to try to move as quickly po as possible through that record, which not only helps in drafting, but also will eventually help uh, uh, should you need it at oral argument. Well, so obviously that's a time-consuming process, but uh, once you once you get through that, you know, sort of, what's your next step? Do you do you start drafting at that point? Yeah, that's. Uh, I mean, usually I've. I, it, yes and no. Uh, I will. By the time I get through the record, I have a general idea of what are the main issues on appeal, uh, and if if it's an area of the law that I know nothing about, about I may do some preliminary. Uh, research in the beginning, but really I, I start delving into drafting the facts section and trying, because that also is another step in the process of learning uh, the record and the facts and it is creating a good factual story uh, that is very good, very well pinpointed to the record. Uh, I, I, I believe that the facts section in, in many appeals is very important if for no other reason, because it's usually the first thing that a judge or their staff attorney is going to read. And, and, and quite frankly, they read enough boring stuff. I really want them to find mine interesting. So I try to tell a story with a good narrative <laughs> hook and, and that of course, objectively, but, but leads the, the, the court in the direction that I want to go. Yeah. I, I approach that similar, similarly. Uh, I think to what you're saying, uh, a lot of times I will almost always draft the statement of facts first. Um, and the statement of the case, just because I want to make sure I, you know, have a handle on procedurally where everything is. And that forces me to really hone in on that. But, but then I, I find that I keep coming back to the statement of facts as I'm writing, because, you know, I see key facts and cases, and I want to make my facts sound a little bit yeah. more like some of the cases than a little less like some <laughs> of the other cases, right? So I find that, um, I, I try to drive to draft it first, but then I'm often keep coming back to it. And I definitely pay a lot of attention to it again at the end, just to make sure that it's really, you know, telling the story that fits with the law that I want to portray. Exactly. And, and, and of course, you know, I, I, I like to try to put in good signposts, as they say, you know, put in good, good, good headings. Uh, I try to stay chronological as best I can. You'll find, uh, it's, some people think that it's a better idea just to sort of summarize testimony. And that, that is, as I, as I understand it from speaking with judges, that is definitely not uh, an enjoyable fact section to read, just summaries of the, what this witness said versus what this witness said. Instead, I try to create, you know, more of a, what you'd find in a novel or, or in a newspaper or something with a good opening tagline of this is what this case is about. And then, progressing through sort of general facts and then start narrowing it uh, down into uh, here, here's the precise, you know, situation for this case or problems or relevant facts, uh, et cetera. And we might be getting too much into the weeds of uh, specifics and, and not talking workflow, but I, 
I just wanted to say that sometimes I will get other people to help me with the first draft of the statement of the facts, like the trial lawyer or whoever. And I, but I find that you, cause you said chronologically and I was thinking, uh, a lot of lawyers, they want to put it together chronologically, but they also want to give me the date that every single thing <laughs> happened in a case. And I always cut that out. I, I, I have heard too many judges say, if you give me a date, I think it's important. And I try to remember it. <laughs> so <laughs> if the date the order was issued isn't really important, I leave that out. <laughs> I, I agree. Or try to show the passage of time through other references, like three months later, yeah, you know, or I, I actually used right. uh, I, I one uh, uh, brief. I used the word "meanwhile," meaning like this was sort of like an interlude <laughs> or an issue that was going to be relevant, but it wasn't exactly. Uh, there was too many chronological facts happening all at once, so I just sort of had a "meanwhile" section. Meanwhile, <laughs> what was happening over here? <laughs> I like it. Yeah. Today's show is sponsored by Commercial Surety Bond Agency the nation's leading surety agency specializing in supersedious bonds. If you have a client needing to stay enforcement of a judgment in Florida or any other state or federal court, contact Commercial Surety. It can be reached on the web at www.commercialsurety.com or toll-free at 877-810-5525. Their contact information is always in the show notes. Let me just say one more time that I am thrilled to have a great company like CSBA sponsoring the show. The next time you have a client who needs an appellate bond, please give CSBA a call. These folks are experts in this area. They'll guide you and your client through the process and give you one less thing to worry about. All right, so once you have your first draft of the facts, your your working draft, what's... uh, what do you tackle next? Well, at that point, uh, that's when I really start researching in, in earnest. Uh, and, and I probably forgot to mention this. As I'm, as I'm going through the record, uh, one of the things that I'm doing is also uh, jotting down uh, any case citations or, or particularly case citations that are going to be really particularly relevant or, or p- that, at least according to the transcript, is analogous to our case. Uh, our particular case, and and so so my goal then is to exhaust uh, for each issue, exhaust the area of law, and start creating uh, a, what is in the beginning an open universe, but closing it down into a very closed universe of cases. Um, so uh, I, I usually start uh, by, as I said, jotting down the individual uh, cases from the record, but then also uh, a lot of times we'll begin with uh, treatises. And uh, um, especially if I don't know it, uh, if it's a completely new subject matter or something that I, I had one case was admiralty and I knew very little about admiralty law. So I had to s- start with generally what, what is admiralty law and, and when does it apply, et cetera, and start sort of wit- uh, uh, narrowing the cases down to try to find factually analogous cases. Uh, but by doing that, it's mostly in the beginning sticking with the treatises and creating my own sort of closed universe list of cases that I need to go back to uh, and read. And then once I Mm -hmm. feel like I've gone through the main, and I'm talking about maybe two or three treatises, once I've gone through the main group of them, uh, then then I'll go back and read my existing closed universe before even starting random bullion searches. uh, Because uh, usually you can get ideas for search terms in in those cases or even in the treatises, which I also sort of jot down ideas as I'm going with, okay, this might be a search p- path to uh, try. Uh, but I, I start 
going through the, that list of cases that I've created. And, uh, and I usually, unless there's a big red flag on it, I usually don't shepherdize and keysight uh, at that time. Instead, what I will do is uh, uh, I will take notes of the cases. I actually forgot to mention this earlier. When I take notes, I'm usually doing it on my iPad. Uh, again, try to be as, as paperless as possible. I use uh, a, a special program uh, that you can buy on on uh, in the Apple Store called GoodNotes 4, I think it is. Uh, but it's like writing on paper. Mm-hmm. Uh, it works perfect. And I basically will, as I read a case, sort of summarize it in a couple of lines or the key path or the key sort of synopsis. And then I will uh, uh, also save the snippets of from that case that's the phrase I think that Westlaw uses basically save them digitally uh, in the in, in online in Westlaw now are you essentially doing all your research in Westlaw yes. yeah that's what our firm uses is Westlaw mm-hmm do you, do you guys actually have a physical library left anymore? Um, we do have a librarian, uh, and we have a library, I think, <laughs> up in our Ohio offices. We have a storage room that also shares itself with the with the name library in our in our office uh, down in uh, in Naples. And then the secondary library would probably be my office because I still do like some uh, stuff in books. Uh, some treatises are just better reviewed. Uh, in books, so I have a, a, a lot of bookshelves in my <laughs> in my library. In fact, are in my office. In fact, I, I before I got into my current office, I was in a very small office. It was an associate's office, and uh, it was basically wall-to-wall books. And we also had uh, statutes going back to the 1940s in there. And uh, somebody referred <laughs> to it as Dumbledore's library, basically. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we have a similar situation. When I first, when I started here, you know, 20 years ago, uh, we had a huge library. And uh, then we we cut the library in half to make the kitchen bigger. And then we cut the library in in half again to create some workroom space. (laughs) And then... Uh, now there's a small closet. I call it the library closet that's left. It has <laughs> a small collection and a tiny desk for the library. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it is nice. It is nice to have treatises in particular. I, I, it is nice to be able to crack open a book, but uh, it's becoming fewer and farther between. That's for sure. That's for sure. Well, and it's nice to have old statutes because at least prior, what is it, 1987, I think, after 1987 is available online. But Anything prior to that is 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 a little more inaccessible. Uh, I mean, I think that mm-hmm. the uh, Florida State University's library has statutes going back further, but they're just scanned in with no bookmarks, and they're very difficult. At least my current understanding, they're very difficult to go through. <laughs> so once you feel like you have a handle on the on the research issues, now what? Now do we start drafting? Yeah, now we start drafting. Now comes the now comes the fun part. Now comes the beauty, and that's uh, of course even while I'm even while I'm drafting, I'm probably still researching some issues and and, and chasing issues down. Absolutely, um, yeah. But but uh, that 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 is once I get a good grasp on the research, uh, and I've gone back and gone through my cases, and then gone back and actually shepherdized those cases and mine them for for additional authorities. Um, 
then I'll start the uh, drafting process. And I try to be as systematic as possible, uh, you know, because by, by that point, I've already done a bit of an outline, at least a very rough general outline. I, I usually don't do too detailed. Um, it's usually more broad issues and then look at those and say, can, can I consolidate them within the same umbrella in some way? Uh, this way, I only have two or three main points, even if each issue inside it has some sub points. So for example, if, if, if um, usually this comes up more when you're the appellee, but if there's a, if there's one merits issue, but there's a preservation problem, then all of that's going to fit under the same Roman numeral for me. It's just going to be the court should reverse for two reasons. One, or I affirm for two reasons. One, because it wasn't preserved and that'll be subsection A. And then because the merits are in my favor and that'll be subsection B. So I try, I try my best to keep them as consolidated and, and, and organized and methodical as possible, as I'm sure all of us appellate attorneys do. Now, when you are drafting, do you have any sort of language bank that you use, you know, uh, standard or review stuff, summary of ju summary judgment standard, that kind of, language that you try and you know just reuse for different briefs yes and no i have more of a research bank in general uh which helps on those kind of routine issues like standard of review and preservation and sometimes i will go back to okay so i'm doing a petition for cert. let me go back and reread a couple of my petitions for cert and see how i uh, sort of set this up and used uh, uh what roadmap i used for that beginning and, and some of that will get drafted into my new uh into my current brief uh but i i don't really have it's probably not a bad idea is that something you do you have like a word document that has standard language for certain things or yeah, and and I haven't been as good about doing it as I wish I had, but I'm I'm trying to be a lot more, uh, you know, determined in following this process. That when I write a standard or review section, you know, I'll cut it out and paste it into that other document, especially if it's something that I particularly like or I thought was you know brilliant in some way. You know, what I mean, to have the language that I use over and over again. Uh, I'm trying to keep that in a document that's separate and easily searchable so I don't have to reinvent the wheel every time. Which makes sense. Uh, and I guess it, it, I, my only hesitation to that is, and I'm sure that you probably find nuances here that you add to it in any particular case, but uh, of course, yeah. I, you know, I, I, we, you know, one of the things I try to do is find cases that are in the subject matter from the same court that res with respect to that subject, with respect to that standard of review, uh, which then can hopefully be weaved into uh, the the actual briefs arguments later, uh, or particularly at the conclusion. So therefore, you should find that there was an abuse of discretion and then cite back to that original main case that I use in my standard of review. Right, right. Yeah, no, it, I suggest it only as a starting point, you know, that obviously is always tailored, you know, to the extent you can and the extent time permits and all that budget permits and all that sort of thing. I'm so, curious if you'll allow the guest to pose a question. Do you do you do your own sort of do you do a separate standard of review section standalone or 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 do you integrate it? I'm curious what you do. I'll allow the question. Uh, <laughs> it, it totally depends, Chris. It's like it really depends on mm -hmm. the brief. 
Um, if the standard or if I'm the appellee and the standard review is really important, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes I will do a standalone section, uh, especially if it's one standard that applies to the whole brief. If it's if I'm trying to downplay the standard or review, uh, I, I won't. <laughs> you just uh, hide it. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I mean, it really, it really, it's really a strategic. It's a good question, uh, and I'm trying to come up with a good example. Uh, but there are definitely times when I set it out as a, as a separate section to call attention to it, and there's other times that I will address it much more summarily, you know, in the argument, or I'll address it at the beginning of each argument, which mm -hmm. is different, you know. And when you do that, if you allow me to post another question, do you, do you still make it a separate subsection or do you sort of integrate it with your roadmap? It depends. If I'm, if I'm, if I'm trying to harp on the standard because I think it's in my favor, then I'll definitely set it out, you know, sort of separately. If it's something that I'm, I'm trying not to have the court focus on, then I'll just work Makes it Makes sense. Out. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally try to integrate it, um, with my uh with my roadmap um you know the, the trial court aired for you know trial court decided x y and z um this was an abuse of you know this court reviews this for an abuse of discretion and this court should find that the court abused discretion for three reasons you know what i mean type of thing uh and of course if more if more needs to happen in explaining that then it's usually i try hard to integrate it with the rest of the argument um but I do agree that there are situations where you need to, you know, maybe the other side's gone off on a completely wrong standard of review, and that needs to be the first thing is to right the ship and head it in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, and I don't want to suggest to this that I ever avoid talking about it because obviously, you know, I, it, it's important whether it's in your favor or not in your favor. So I, I never avoid the issue, but how much I talk about it might depend on, you know, how – how it works in my favor or not. But uh, yeah, if I'm, you know, if I am the appellant and I have a de novo standard, you can bet you'll see the words de novo a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and if I'm an appellee and I've got an abuse of discretion standard, I'll talk about that a lot too, you know? Yeah. And I wasn't suggesting that I didn't take that away from your, 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 no, no, I didn't think you did, but I was just thinking about my own comments and, you know, I, I think downplaying the standard is fair, but I would all, always address my arguments within the context of the standard because I know the judges want to know that. That makes sense. So what does your rough draft look like at this point? Do you, uh, you take an issue at a time and work through the whole thing? Yeah, I usually don't start sort of the I, I don't start the full-fledged editing until I have all the issues drafted um, but candidly I am one of those who uh, draft as I go at least uh, uh, I will write a sentence and then delete the sentence and then rewrite the sentence and then have several versions of the sentence underneath it <laughs> for some for some things uh, it, it is uh, I know that there are, are certainly some experts out there like Brian Gardner who suggests you should be the madman and write everything out first and then go back and you know, turn, turn the editor off during that process. And I, I've tried that and it, it, it just doesn't work for me. Uh, so I, I, when I finally have a final draft, I have a, a pretty, uh, at least, uh, it makes sense draft. I mean, it's certainly, I go through several, uh, additional edits and read throughs, um, usually at least two, um, depending on how, how much, 
time it takes to do those and depending on the type of case it is and the client's ability to continue to pay for me to <laughs> reread something, so to say. But uh, uh, I usually try to do at least two drafts before then I, I then usually give it to the trial counsel since they were boots on the ground originally uh, and give give them an opportunity to review it and, and, and give any edits. And hopefully by that point, it's in pretty good shape and there's not much that needs changing. Uh, and then right when, when they're done, I will uh, do the table of authorities, which candidly, I, I used to have my assistant do that. But now that there's West brief tools, it, it's just a couple of clicks. And it's also a good time to check your citations and make sure you haven't miscited something or cited something it's not according to Blue Book. So usually I, I spend the you know, 10 or 20 minutes to do that myself, and then I'll give it one final read-through uh, before it goes out the door and make any minor changes or edits. And the other thing I like to do is convert it to PDF myself just so that then I can then put it on an iPad and see what it looks like as the judges will likely be reading it since a lot of the judges still uh, – well, since a lot of the judges read their uh, briefs uh, on an iPad or on a computer screen. So I want to see what my brief looks like uh, from their perspective. Okay. I, I want to back up just a little bit, Chris, because there are a couple of things you said that I want to cover before we move on. And one is um, about proofreading a rough draft. Mm -hmm. And I sort of have this – concept when I proofread, I, I divide it up into different levels in my head. Mm -hmm. and, and I say different levels, and it, it really depends upon the complexity and the length of the document. Sometimes I might do all three of these things at once, but more often than not in a complex document, I actually do them separately in my head. Um, the first thing I do is sort of like a structural or a big picture read where I try and clear my head a little bit. It's nice if you can set the document aside for a few hours or a day before you do this, right? It's not always a lecture but, we have, but yes, that's not, ideal. That's right. that's right. But try and read it as an outsider would read it, right? As a judge would read it and say, right. do the, you know, do I have the headings right? Are the headings accurate? Do they make sense? Um, is the, is the organization uh, logical? Does everything flow? Do I need any transitions? Mm -hmm. It's like the, you know, the, the big picture without worrying about the nitty gritty uh, just does this thing make sense? And is this the right argument? And is it good? Right. Um, once I get past that, then I delve down into the more technical aspects. I look at the citations. Uh, I make sure that the, the blue book form is correct, uh, that I'm putting in pinpoint citations everywhere possible because right. I really hate to use non-pinpointed citations Me unless too. there's a reason, right? Me too. Um, and make sure that I have citations, that I have ids where I need them and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And then the last stage is more of like a word-by-word, space-by-space, punctuation-by-punctuation type uh, proof where I'm checking for all those things, uh, you know, to make sure there's no misspellings, to make sure there's no typos, to make sure that I've, you know, got my Oxford commas, right? right. <laughs> and that Amen. kind of thing. <laughs> so it's, it, proofing is, it's an important part of the process. You never want to run out of time, right? Mm -hmm. And, and you really, uh, there's so much value to setting aside a draft at the end and, and coming back to it the next day. Uh, there's times when I've, you know, just because of whatever, I have to finish writing and proofing in the same day, but I don't like to do it that way because it's much better on fresh eyes that uh, 
you don't keep reading what what you think you wrote instead of what you actually wrote. Yeah, I'm the same way. And I, I try, it doesn't always work out this way, but I try to do my proofing uh, first thing in the morning because that's usually when I'm most alert. I'm, I'm an early bird kind of person. So I'll get a cup of coffee and sit in a comfort. I, I have a, actually, I said this before and earlier today, but I have a comfy chair in my office. Like it's my reading chair. Uh, and everybody gives me a hard time at the office about that, but that's the chair I sit in to do my editing and, uh, or at least most of my editing and most of the important editing, uh, and, uh, drink coffee while I'm doing it. One thing I've found too, and in, in, I use Westlaw like you do, and there is a feature in Westlaw that they probably have it in Lexus too. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But um, when I am writing, generally, you know, I have two screens mm-hmm. uh, for my computer, and usually I have the my Word document with my brief on one side and Westlaw open on the other side. And I am generally pasting things from Westlaw into my brief so that I make sure that I don't have any issues with the accuracy of my quotes. Uh, And more importantly, Westlaw has a copy with reference feature where it will automatically format and insert your, your case site. Uh, So that I I love that feature. I I hate typing uh, citations. You know, it's so easy to transpose numbers and I know I see lawyers do it all the time where I try and look up their case and it's not there. And it's because they wrote, you know, 245 instead of 254. Uh, and I, I like to think that that doesn't happen to me too much because I rely on Westlaw to, you know, paste those things in and get it right. Yeah, I agree. That's been a great feature uh, for Westlaw. And I'm sure Lexus probably has this too, but uh, it, it has saved time in the editing process because uh, I'm sure like you at some point, at least especially early on, I, I would spend an entire segment, you know, I break my editing process up at least conceptually into different things that I look for as well. And uh, uh, it, it, I used to spend a lot more time making sure the sites are correct. And maybe there's a staff attorney that says now that I need to spend more time on that now, but um, <laughs> the uh, certainly that uh, uh, quote with reference or I forget exactly what it phrases, but that that allows you to copy and paste it and automatic and, and Westlaw automatically generates the site for you. Uh at least for case citations and generally statutes is awesome. It gets a little wonky with other things, but uh uh um yeah that's that's a great feature. Right. Now in your practice, how often does your client read your brief before it goes out? Yeah, it's funny. I I thought this. You go back to the beginning of our of our discussion about lack of of uh, of uh, appellate mentoring, so to say. I thought that everybody had their client read their brief before it goes out, uh, but I recently learned that that may not be the case. But I generally try to get my brief done a couple of days in advance, so that both the trial counsel and the client. And this is true, even if it's a motion, uh, we'll take a look at it. And they usually don't have anything to say. I mean, it depends on the level of sophistication of the client. Uh, but uh, I don't know, maybe it's my own ego. I like them to say, you know, great work you know what I mean? <laughs> or something. But I, <laughs> I do try to let them at least see it before it goes out the door, uh, generally speaking, unless there's some big emergency. You know, I generally do too. I would say more often than not, but it really does depend upon the client. Like some are either not sophisticated enough to care, mm-hmm. right, or to have any significant input and they 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 don't 
it doesn't matter to them. Right. Or there are some that are sophisticated enough that they still don't care because they're like, well, you know, it is what it is. Right. But uh, I was curious because I, I, you're right. I think different people have different practices. And, you know, to me, I feel like if the client wants to or is willing to look at it, um, I like them to look at it so they don't complain about it later. Right. But um, but it really does depend a lot on the client. I agree. And now what does get a little bit, uh, and this doesn't happen all that often, but what does get a little bit, uh, um, I don't know, uneasy is when either trial counsel or uh, the client sends back particularly grammatical edits that I'm not perfect. I, I know that. And I, I consider myself still a student of writing, even uh, even. 15 years into practice, so to say, but, uh, the worst is when it's not right. And you can, <laughs> you can prove it. You have the grammar books on your desk to prove it. And then to figure out, do you, do you just make the change or just don't make the change or what? I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I just don't make the change, but make other changes. Uh, and sometimes I say it's not worth it and, and just make the change. <laughs> what do you do in that situation? Oh, Chris, I've got horror stories about this. that are, the, the wounds are too fresh for me to talk about. <laughs> you know, I, I, I know. And sometimes, sometimes we have lawyers as clients mm -hmm. and they have very specific, you know, requests in that regard. And it's tough. I mean, I feel like ultimately, ideally the, the brief is my creation, right? right? It's my voice. And that's what you're paying me for is my expertise and my voice. And so I don't like to do things that don't sound like me or don't, aren't things that I would say or ways I would phrase things or mm -hmm. choices that I would make. Uh, but it, it does become sort of a negotiation with the client sometimes. And it's, it's troubling. You know, yeah. I, I would like to say that I've taken a stand and said, I refuse to, you know, to do something that you want in the brief, but it's, it's tough to do that. It is. Unless it's, of course, unless it's unethical or unjustified course, yeah. or, you know what I mean? But I'm saying stylistically. Right. That's what I was talking <laughs> about. Yeah. 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 And, and, and candidly yeah. there, I have so far, uh, I have not necessarily been challenged after the fact, after filing something that, Hey, you didn't make that change. Uh, so I haven't just because I didn't make it. Now I usually make a lot of the other changes they want, but uh, on something that I might be particularly passionate about, like say I don't know, uh, single spaces or uh, uh, <laughs> Oxford commas, et cetera, Oxford then I, commas, I typically yeah. just go with my uh, with uh, my style. I, I would do that too. Yeah. yeah. Now, so I'm still catching up on commenting on some of the things you said. Sure. I, I also like to be the one who converts the brief into PDF form because mm -hmm. I'm very particular. I'm sort of, even though I know judges and it depends on the court, but a lot of judges don't actually look at the brief in the form that I'm providing them. Right. I still care what it looks like. I care where the page breaks are. I care that the, you know, um, that the white space is there and that sort of thing. And when I convert it to PDF, it's the same thing. I want to be sure that the conversion is good, that I like how it looks ultimately. Uh, so I do, I do the same thing. I'm curious, do you ever bookmark your brief the way you bookmark an appendix? Uh, I, I do. Uh, I'm, I'm just trying to unpack what you, what you're, you're I'm trying to unpack your question uh, because 
anytime I file a brief, it, the headings, all the headings are bookmarked. Uh, and I usually can do that in the conversion process in word. There's an, there's an ability to do that. I'm not sure I can tell you right now how to do it. It's just sort of mental, uh, memory right now, or, uh, uh muscle memory is the word I was looking for. Uh, but mm-hmm. it, it, I do usually file it with bookmarks. Yes. Okay. And do you set it so that when the brief opens, it opens with that bookmark, uh, tab open? I do. Yes. I, I have to, uh, there was, I can't remember who it was, but a couple of, probably about a year ago at this point, somebody was speaking on that particular issue that I didn't even know you could do that. And I have since been uh, uh, doing that, uh, making sure that feature is clicked so that it automatically opens with the bookmark showing and that it's on page view. I I must have been at the same CLE because that's about when I started doing it too. Because yeah. I figure, you know, not everybody will look for the bookmarks unless you set up the default so that it opens with the bookmarks panel open. But Ever since I learned how to do bookmarks and PDFs, I love it, and I probably overuse it. <laughs> yeah, and, and it really super annoys me when opposing counsel does not take the time to do that, <laughs> especially yeah, if they agreed. don't do the uh, bookmarks of the appendix correctly, which luckily I've noticed some of the courts uh, are starting to kick that back and, and requiring them to comply with the uh, 9.220 rule, but uh, – um, that is so annoying, especially when you're a paperless person and you need those bookmarks to be able to move through a document fast. So a lot of times I'll kick it over to uh, my legal assistant or paralegal and ask her, I feel bad doing it because it's such a mundane task, but ask her to put the bookmarks in it for me so that I don't have to build a client for putting those. <laughs> right. Right. All right. So you, you get the, you get the brief filed, um, now you've got at least 30 days probably, right, right. <laughs> before a, a answer brief comes in. And uh, anything you do in that in that process, or are we just waiting for the answer no, brief? No, just waiting for the answer brief at that point. Um, I, I'm moving on to another brief, usually spending enough time right. with something yeah. else that I'm forgetting what the case was about. <laughs> All right, so then some someday the answer brief rolls in, right. and uh, how do you how do you approach? getting ready for the reply. I can't wait to hear somebody in the future explain the most efficient way to do get back up to speed in, in a reply. I don't have the answer to that because uh, usually I feel like I, to a certain extent, start over. Uh, and, and at least I begin by, go, I don't read the answer brief first I, I that, that was just filed. I go back and reread my initial brief. Uh, and just for a reminder, especially if there's been several extensions of time on the answer brief, just for a reminder of what the case is about, uh, or at least the, at least the nitty gritty of it uh, is about. Uh, and then, uh, uh, then after reading the initial brief, then I'll read the answer brief, and that, and 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 after the after which is when I start trying to read the answer brief in more detail to identify what arguments uh, were addressed in the answer brief that I raised originally in the initial brief, uh, what arguments were not addressed because I'm always surprised to see when the appellee doesn't address a particular argument. Um, and I'm quick to jump on it too in my reply brief. Uh, and then uh, uh, what arguments really have already been addressed that I don't need to spend a lot of time re rehashing in the reply brief stage. And then I, that's when I actually, a lot of times I will roughly outline 
the main arguments that the answer brief or the the, the Apple E raised, and then sort of sub subheading in an outline that my potential counter arguments as I'm think you know as I'm reading it you know several times, uh, and and as I'm rereading the or not rereading excuse me as I'm reading and shepherdizing the answer brief's key cases. I don't usually necessarily spend a lot of time on their their standard of review cases unless I disagree with it. But you know the the analogous cases I'll, I'll then uh, reanalyze, and then after which is when I start, you know, kind of then the process kind of looks a lot like the appellate the, the doing the the initial brief. I start looking at some additional case law research, any issues that or uh, sort of any counter issues that I might need to raise. Uh, particularly if it's something new where the Applebee's maybe argued uh, preservation or, or, or tipsy coachman doctrine type issues, then I, I, I'm going to have to start sort of delving back into uh, a whole new counter argument to that concept rather than just rehashing and highlighting the main points in my initial brief that weren't addressed necessarily in the in the answer brief. Yeah, I, I have a very similar process. I, I really, I kind of like reply briefs just because <laughs> the, you know, the sort of most of the work has been done, you know, as far as research and stuff at that point, the universe is fairly narrow. Mm -hmm. The page limits are fairly small and I feel like you can real, but, but it's important, you know? So I feel like you, this is where you can really make some hay and tearing apart, uh, you know, the answer brief. Um, if, if there's, if there's something there and a lot of times that, involves really digging into the cases that they're relying on in their answer brief to see where I can distinguish them and that sort of thing. The The only other thing I would say as far as getting up to speed, it is tough. Um, not as, sometimes not as tough as for oral argument, which is even <laughs> farther down the road yeah. usually, right? But uh, I do, when I'm writing the brief, I will usually have and I hate to say it, a yellow pad, because I do a lot of stuff. I try and be paperless too, but I will generally keep a yellow pad that I'll have a page that says reply brief and a page that says OA mm -hmm. when I'm writing my initial brief. And to the extent I think, mm, this is something that's going to be good fodder for OA. This is something I'm going to want to talk about. You know, I'll just jot that down so I don't have to you know, figure it out later or same thing. Or when I see something in the reply, I'm like, you know, I bet they're going to try and distinguish this and their answer brief. So I want to be prepared for that. And so I'll just take a couple notes as I go. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm going to unpack that too. Uh, first off, you said you like reply briefs. I actually really don't like reply briefs. That's the worst part of our practice, in my opinion, besides reading the record. But uh, uh, but I do that's know they're yeah. super important. And maybe that's why deep down inside, I dislike them because I, I know they're super important and they're really tough and they require a lot of good time to get it right to be that last word on paper. One of the things that I do uh, a lot of times, and I forgot to mention this during the initial brief stage, is I will have a separate word document that I literally title cutting room floor or initial brief cutting room floor. And that's the arguments <laughs> that I put in there that might be better in the reply brief or might just not be better at all. <laughs> but I don't, I'm not, I don't want it to uh, uh, go to the uh, uh, delete uh, never be to be found again, sort of uh, a process. So I do have a separate word document usually for, for my, uh, like what sounds like you've done within the, uh, uh, your notepad uh, with having potential arguments for the reply brief. All right. So 
hopefully we get through that whole process. You know, we, we file our reply brief and then the waiting really begins. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Especially if there's not oral argument, who knows when they can make the decision. That's right. Yeah. And I don't think we have time to talk about oral arguments specifically, but just to talk about what we were saying before is that, you know, OA can be months down the road mm-hmm. and, uh, that can be a challenge to get back up to speed with all this stuff again and get ready get and get yourself up and ready for oral argument. I think, you know, that I think clients look at it and they say, well, it's, you know, you're only going to argue for an hour. How long can it take to get ready? And right. <laughs> the answer is it can take a long time. Yeah. They, I have found that, um, I mean, even trial attorneys don't always have the same notion of the intensity that oral argument can bring and, and, and the, the amount of, preparation required to do a very good and effective oral argument, especially if you have a hot bench who just suddenly randomly talks about a case that wasn't really heavily talked about in the brief necessarily, you you still need to be ready to talk about it. Yeah. So now we've been talking, we've been sort of focusing on being the appellant. Uh, How how are things different if you're the appellee? Are things much different for you? Generally, I mean, in some respects, the word that comes to mind is laid back. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, the, the notice of appeal gets filed. Uh, you know, the others, the appellant files his his or her directions to the uh, clerk and designations. Uh, the only real nuance there is is uh, when either the directions get filed, if there's specific directions to include certain things. Uh, or when the clerk actually files the index, then I will uh, I'll have my uh, assistant uh, print off a copy of the trial docket and uh, uh, go through it and highlight the things that are included in either the, the the appellant's directions or in the index. This way, I can read it at a glance and see that everything's in it. Or hey, wait a minute, I don't know what this entry is and it's not included. I need to go and look and see if that's something that could potentially be relevant to uh, to the appeal. So, in terms of record preparation, that's really the only difference uh, as the appellee. And that can be a hard determination to make because you really don't necessarily know what the issues on appeal are going to be at that point. I mean, that's the, that's the problem with being an appellee is, you know, someone appeals a final order and everything is potentially, you know, at risk and it can be hard to know exactly. I mean, sometimes, you know, because the way trial went or whatever, but um, sometimes until we get that initial brief, uh, we don't really know for sure what the issues are going to be. Right. No, you're you're completely correct. And one thing I do find it difficult is, uh, especially clients who want to talk about and theorize what's going to be the issues on appeal. And oftentimes, I, I try to convey that we could, I could spend, we could spend all day talking about the chess game of what could happen. But it might be better and 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 a better use of your resources if we wait until it, the briefs actually here, and then we spend time <laughs> figuring out the counter arguments because then we'll know what the arguments are that have been raised. Well, that's right, and and that thirty days that you have now, thankfully, thirty days uh, to to do the answer brief. Uh, particularly when it was 20 days, that can be a very short period of time because this thing lands on your desk. And now for the first time, you're getting a real crystal crystal clear picture of what the issues are. Um, That that time can run pretty quickly. It can. And I am very thankful that uh, a lot of the district courts are, are, 
are open to extensions of times because <laughs> it never fails that uh, you, either because you've given other people extensions or because you get emergencies on your desk that it's that everything seems to happen all at once. Yeah. 30 days is a good aspirational goal. Right. <laughs> but not always practical. Right. What about in the in the brief drafting itself? Anything in particular that, that stands out for you? The, the, you? the brief drafting as the appellee is very similar to the brief draft. I can't speak. It's very similar to the brief drafting as the appellant at the reply stage, at least for me. I mean, I, I typically spend a little bit of time rereading the initial brief and 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 taking a look at the case, the key cases, and shepherdize shepherdizing them uh, that are put in the. In, uh, appellant's initial brief, uh, and then I will outline the appellant's issues and start jotting down potential counterarguments that uh, uh, could be raised and that I sh- that I need to pursue uh, in terms of research and and follow that rabbit trail down the hole, so to say. And oftentimes, in that process of following the rabbit trail, I come up with some other great arguments that uh, I wouldn't have thought of if I didn't exhaust the the issue, uh, uh, exhaust the research on a particular issue. Well, Chris, I think this has been good. I mean, I, I, I wish we had time to get through oral argument and maybe even post opinion motions, but that may have to be a topic for another day. We, we have, I don't, I don't want to tell the audience that their attention span is limited, but I do have space limits on my, uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, this is, on my this was, content uh this is all host. part of my plan to get invited back <laughs> there you go <laughs> but this is good you know we don't uh, we don't always talk about workflows and sort of approaches and i'm sure that uh people have different approaches and i don't think either you or i are saying that that uh, what you do or what i do is the right way or the only way it's a way uh i I always am curious to hear how different people approach things. So it's interesting to know when people do things the same way you do, that's interesting to know. And it's some validation, I guess, but uh, it's also very interesting to hear when people do things differently because, you know, I think we're always open for ideas to improve and to change and that sort of thing. So it's definitely worth having the discussion. Yeah. And I agree. We don't spend enough time sort of talking about the meta of our process uh, and, and there, I, I can't wait to, hopefully you'll have others on here talking about this as well. Cause I, I certainly would love to hear other people's process and maybe incorporate that in mine and, and modify mine. Cause I certainly don't think that mine is always the most effective way and maybe not even the most efficient, but, uh, it does seem to work for me right now. And I seem to find a lot of success for it with it. Well, Chris, uh, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? Well, uh, I'm the you can on my website. There's the uh, my you can find my bio, and uh, we can put my phone number in the um, show notes. And my email address yep. is c donovan d o n o v is in victory a n at r a law dot com, and then you can also follow me on Twitter. Uh, and, which is uh, what is my Twitter handle at Appellate Guru? That's what it is, I think. Right. <laughs> I just got on Twitter about a year and a half ago, so I'm still a little new at that. I like the V is for victory instead of just Victor. That's a, that's another good little marketing <laughs> I, plug. That's my, that's, I'll be honest with you. That's what my uh, mom has been saying since I was knee high to nothing. So. 
<laughs> my wife teases me about it and i'm sure now that every uh, i've said that on uh on your podcast i'm sure everybody in the appellate bar will now tease me about that <laughs> well i hope everybody is listening so that will be a good sign it right <laughs> it will be. hey chris thanks so much for your time uh i appreciate you being a guest on the podcast and we'll definitely have have you back in Sounds the future good. thank you Dwayne. Thanks to Chris Donovan for being my guest on the Issues on Appeal podcast. Remember, podcasts are never legal advice. Nothing that I say or my guests say should be interpreted as legal advice for any particular situation. But that being said, if you're a lawyer who needs the help of an appellate lawyer, I'm happy to try and help you out. You can contact me at Issues on Appeal on Twitter or at my professional email, ddaiker at shoemaker.com. My contact information is always in the show notes, which are available in your podcast player or on our website, issuesonappeal.com. Thanks again for listening. Please consider telling a lawyer that you know about the show. If you could share a link on your social media accounts, that would be great. Any exposure for the show is greatly appreciated. And please consider using our sponsor, Commercial Surety Bond Agency, for your client's appellate bond needs. Their contact information is in the show notes. Please take a moment, add it to your contacts, so that you're ready when your client needs a supersedious bond. I've got another great show coming up in two weeks. And, as always, thank you for considering this week's Issues on Appeal.